It is a, uh, it always does our heart good to see people that will hang in till the ending session of the day, or as I like to think of it, the grand finale. We are going, we are very, very pleased and honored to have uh, the guests that we have here today. And I am going to leave their introductions up to Michael and Vala, but I will just tell you very briefly that this is our live Google Hangout in the CIO Town Hall. And the Town Hall portion of it is essentially an ongoing Q&A that we hope you'll take part in as everyone is talking up here on stage. Vala and Michael and our panelists will throw questions out. And if you're interested, you'll come over and I will hop up out of my seat. You'll sit down. There's a very little camera over there, not, not at all intimidating. And you sit down in front of the little camera and ask your question. And that way, you'll get to interact live with the panel up here. Rather than having a microphone come to you at the table, you essentially will come to the microphone. So as I mentioned earlier, you all met Vala earlier today. His uh, partner in crime up here is Michael Krigsman, who is he's the CEO of Astoret. And he's an analyst and a strategy advisor and an authority on enterprise strategy, leadership, CIO innovation, and social business. He's also a columnist for ZDNet and has written many, many articles on enterprise software and cloud and CRM and ERP and a whole lineup of technical alphabet type things. He's also written a lot of thought leadership reports for major analyst firms such as IDC on project portfolio management and social business and cloud. And Michael and Vala are true masters at finding the most provocative ideas on leadership to explore with their guests. This is in this unique spin on their CXO talk format, which they do every Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. on the internet. They're doing it live here. And this will also be uh, recorded and will be uh, running live on their site. And then it will be available to uh, look at forevermore. As we know, everything on the internet is forever. So I probably shouldn't mention that to your guests before we got started. Um, we're going to be uh, talking with CIO David Bray of the FCC and Deputy CIO Alyssa Johnson of the Executive Office of the President. And today's topic is how IT changes the art of the possible. So I will hand it over to our hosts, Michael and Bala, and away we go. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mary Fran. So CXO Talk is, is, as Mary Fran said, it's a weekly web broadcast where my incredible co-host, Vala Afshar, and I bring together uh, really amazing CIOs and CMOs and other senior level executives. And we focus on innovation, leadership, and business transformation. So today we have, and this is this is episode number what? 64. This is episode number 64. And we have two amazing people with us today, Paula. We do, absolutely. And uh, just to remind us of the crowd before introductions, uh, we'll, both of us will blog about this event. So as you're asking questions, you'll be part of the video blog. And sometime around Wednesday, Thursday, next week, Huffington Post Tech will cover, cover this event. So with that, why don't we uh, start with uh, brief introductions? So I am Dr. Alyssa Johnson. I'm the Deputy CIO of the Executive Office of the President. So let me tell you a little bit about what that means. There's been some, some question about kind of where that falls. The Executive Office of the President serves the President, the Vice President, all the offices in the White House, all of the components. Many of you may be familiar with Steve Van Roekel, who's the US CIO. He is actually one of my customers. I provide IT services to him. 
um, and he serves, of course, all of the CIOs within the federal government. So I am specifically for um, the executive office and all of the components that, that um, are within the executive office of the president. So that includes the White House, First Lady's Office, ONDCP, OSCP, and the list goes on and on. Alphabet soup goes on and on. Great. And David Bray? Yes. Uh, my name is Dr. David Bray. I'm honored to be here with Michael, um, Alyssa, and Fala. And uh, I'm currently Chief Information Officer for the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, the Federal Communications Commission has been around uh, since 1934 and is, is there to work with industry on the public infrastructure, both wired and wireless. Uh, we have 18 different bureaus and offices. We're small. We're only about 754 people. Um, however, I started about 10 months ago. And they often say, like, being a CIO is like driving a used car off the lot. And then finally, once you stop it, you open up the hood and say, what did I just inherit? Uh, I inherited, even though we only have about 1,754 people, 207 different systems, um, which back in 2012, uh, more than 40% of them were more than 10 years old. And of course, 2012, we then went into sequestration. So there was no new development since that time. So we can now assume those systems were now at least 14 years old, if not older. Now, now we refer to Dr. Johnson affectionately as Dr. J. Yes. And so, therefore, we have Dr. J, Dr. Bray, and of course, Dr. Dr. Bray. <laughs> <laughs> if you're expecting me to rap, I, I apologize. He promised. All right. So he's all right. So, uh, so we've been talking today about the changing role of the CIO, and the focus of this conversation is going to be about the impact of technology leadership in the government. So let's begin with a question. Is IT in the government something more than feeds and speeds and infrastructure? I say yes. I think it's data to data. That's what it's all moving to. Um, it's more than enabling, it is, um, you know, CIO's office is changing. We'll talk about that a little bit more, too. But, um, yes, it's all data-centric. That's where, you know, that's where our biggest bang for our buck is. No more are we wanting to hug our servers and check to see if the blinking lights are really blinking. It's really more than that. It's about providing services and actually enabling others, um, whether it's our customers or whether it's the American citizens, um, with, by providing them more data. David, is that an aspirational statement that you just said, or is that? Oh, I think that's definitely happening. I think um, you definitely have the, the shift to focusing more on the data, how the data can drive decisions. Um, I think the other change that's happening, there are two changes that are happening simultaneously. One is the lines between what's inherently governmental, what can be done working with the public, what can be done with working with the private sector and public-private partnerships, that's also getting blurred. And so I often like to use the word public service because that includes government workers, but also think about what we can do with individuals, the public, and the private service. The other thing that I see the big thing that IT is going towards is it's increasingly becoming a way of helping to inform decisions and evidence-based policy. And so uh, with the shift to data, 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 I think it's also a shift to that IT is providing the ability to actually make decisions with confidence and with trust. You, uh, we had a, earlier today, we had a millennial session. We talked about what millennials expect from work and how future of work is changing. You're one of the youngest CIOs in federal government. And I know recently you spoke um, on several panels. One was regarding thinking like a startup and the evolving role of the CIO. 
So given the fact millennials was a topic, you're one of the youngest CIOs, and you're thinking like a startup CIO, you know, talk a little bit about that and how that's going to help take that 14-year-old infrastructure of yours, at least the 40%, right. and move it to this uh, digital business that, that, that we expect today. Um, so I often say what I'm trying to do is operate a startup within an 80-year-old legacy organization, um, which is fun. Um, and, and I think it, the startup mentality is really sort of encouraging people to have three things. One is having autonomy. Uh, if you provide people autonomy, then they actually are empowered to actually make creative solutions in that space. And I think IT, we need that because the rate of technology change is so high, you can't just limit yourself to what you did last year. Sure. Uh, and so you do have to think creatively. Sure. The second thing that you need to think about is how can you show measurable progress? Um, that helps both the enterprise see the value that IT provides, but it also helps the individual employee. If they can see that they're making measurable progress on an issue, they feel empowered and they want to do more. Uh, and then finally, uh, and the good thing is we have plenty of this in public service, a hard mission with a worthy cause behind it. If, if someone feels like it's something that's noble to take on, and if you can actually set and you can, can frame it in such a way that they actually are seeing the mission, seeing what they're doing to support it, um, those three things, to me, it's a startup uh, mentality. I'm doing what I'm calling intrapreneurs, so entrepreneurs on the inside, because often we celebrate entrepreneurs on the outside, and that's great because they help create new markets. But the same thing is we don't really want to dramatically destroy the organizations we have and start anew, we really want to sort of renew them from the inside. And so what we need are the same sort of entrepreneurial mindset just on the inside, calling them entrepreneurs. Are these change agents that you, you said what, 18 bureaus? Yes. So are these change agents within the 18 bureaus that help in a decentralized ecosystem essentially create a virtual centralized thought leadership and creative and momentum? Right. It's the idea that the CIO doesn't have to be the only one making decisions and trying to encourage change. By having the entrepreneurs embedded in the different bureaus and offices, one, they get to learn their different cultures, because there are different cultures. And they begin to build that trust. And once you've built that trust, then you can have a conversation and say, let's, 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 let's put aside your, your way that you have done things. Let's just storyboard whether it's on a napkin or whether it's on a whiteboard. Let's storyboard how you want to go going forward. And then after that, we can actually figure out the modular IT that can be used to actually update it going forward. So let me take this from a different perspective, because within the ex executive office of the president, we call ourselves a startup company every four to eight years. Depending on, you know, when we have a new election, we could have either started, you know, we could have ended in four years or we could be ending in eight years and, and, and as you all know, we are ending in eight years. Um, but then there will be a new CIO that comes and a new deputy CIO that comes and, and they're going to have a whole new vision, that president is going to have a whole new vision, and it may not be exactly what we envision. But we are trying to enable, and, and, and I like your term, entrepreneurs, allowing our, our um, IT shop to be innovative within themselves, champion their own ideas, so that when we leave, those things keep going on and on and on and continuing to carry. We've got you know, great staff, interns. We use millennials a whole lot within uh, the EOP. And so um, it's, it's great to have millennials and, and, and in my case, many of our interns, when we have 25-year veterans, and they're working hand-in-hand -hand together, you've got the institutional knowledge, and you've got the, the, the you know, college students sitting there saying, what, you still have a floppy? You know, when, when the president, when we first... Okay, that's, that's breaking news. That's what we in the White House. That is you were looking for breaking news. Right. <laughs> that's what um, this administration inherited. <laughs> um, you know, nothing against the Bush administration at all, um, but was not a very technical, savvy, very strong and rich technically. Um, and so 
Um, Brooke Colangelo was the uh, CIO then, and he came in and learned, and we'll talk about this a little today, he learned that he had to start off being an infrastructure CIO and then transition it to an innovative CIO in order to help provide um, stability because you know, we've got a president that wants a BlackBerry and he's got a floppy you know, desktop with a clock. We had to do away with all of those things. Now, was it a thing? Do you carry a BlackBerry? I do. Okay, so let me get Why do you carry a BlackBerry? I was going to ask exactly that question. So I carry, I carry multiple devices. I mean, there's nothing wrong with carrying a BlackBerry. I just. I carry multiple devices. But she's very tech savvy CIO, and that's my one. I'm, I'm very, very selfish, and I like to know what my customers are, are using and are feeling. And so um, everybody here knows the president has a BlackBerry. That's not that's public knowledge. And so if he has a problem on his BlackBerry, I can't say, hello, Mr. President, can I borrow your BlackBerry and see what's going on? If this doesn't work like that in the White House, so I have my own so that you know I can see what his experience and the and other White House staff experience is going to be like. So also have a BYOD solution on my on my iPhone, my personal phone. So I know in case something is happening, and I know what those users are feeling like. We have, um, you know, this is the, the place where I say I will never have as many triple VIPs I'm supporting in the world. <laughs> and so when you think about that, um, saying no or, or those triple VIPs not being able to get an email is, is, is huge for us. So this is, this is customer experience taken to the Yes. When you talk about the president. It is. But let me, you know, I hear you, I hear you guys talking about all of these great things that IT is doing and can do and so forth. So is it wrong for me to be slightly skeptical about something? No, you're an analyst. You're, I think that's okay. in your so, DNA. So, well, we're so, also both so, Gen, X right, so, Gen X inherently is skeptical. Yeah, I think the government is uniquely and should be skeptical. So we have a there's a you know a large conversation about the government is slow and we're late on delivering on IT. We're not the cutting edge, and I I argue that we shouldn't be, that we should be on the edge, but not necessarily on the cutting edge. And that's where public and private partnership come come along because I as a deputy CIO I expect my private partners to be on cutting edge so they can help keep me moving along. And so then we don't get into a, a place where you know I have a desktop with floppy drives, or you have you know an infrastructure or, or a system that's you know 10, 12 years old. But yeah, I think also, so, so so I guess go a little bit further. What are you specifically skeptical about? Well, Dr. J, Dr. Bray, <laughs> just addressed just addressed my uh, concern because I think that in, in both the government and the private sector, there is this tension between the reality that many, many, many projects, again, both in public and private sector, many projects are laid in open private. And at the same time, there's a lot of talk about the great things that IT can do. And I'm always, and, and so I'm very interested in how you can, how you, both of you, as government CIOs, reconcile this tension and really, what what is the highest value that IT and the CIO can bring? So it's really kind of together. So my personal view is that, particularly in our so so our world is changing very fast, um, and we may not be aware of it. So 2013, there were seven billion network devices on the face of the planet. 
In less than two years, come 2015, there'll be 14 billion, so twice the number of humans on the planet. By 2020, there'll be anywhere between 50 and 75, some say even higher, billion network devices on the planet. So we cannot apply linear to what we've done going forward um, because the world is changing exponentially. And so we also have to think about how do we have things that are increasing that are going to be automated because there aren't going to be enough humans to actually pay even attention to all those different network devices. Um, that said, the one thing that's great about the United States and a representative democracy is we don't have a king. Um, when the founders actually fought the revolution, intentionally the Federalist Papers number 51, they said they wanted ambition to counter ambition. They said if all, you know, what is government but a reflection of humanity? If all men were angels, no government would be necessary. And so some of these things that we lament, that government has stovepipes, that they have turf, or that they actually have some slowness to them, that was actually intentionally a check and balance to prevent any one person from becoming a king-like individual. And that works well until about the 1990s, when IT has to start being more and more horizontal. But the challenge is, is the very system is designed to discourage being horizontal to prevent any one person from getting too much power. Now, I'm excited because I think as IT increasingly allows us to actually have open data with the public and share things with the public and increasingly be more transparent about what we're doing, that itself can become a check and balance in terms of what we do with public service so that one person doesn't get too much power. And then we can start saying, well, why can't we be horizontal now? because now we do have a separate check and balance that we can do going forward. But we need to have those conversations because I worry, I do worry sometimes that, you think about it, you know, right now if you're either a dictatorship or an oligarchy uh, with a free market, you can actually be much more effective in your public IT and the services that are provided than you can with a representative democracy. And so we need to have that conversation as a nation as to where we want to go. We do hear the term open government. Can you just help us understand what that means? Sure. Um, so I think it's increasingly the idea that um, government can be more transparent about what it's doing. Uh, it probably started at the same time that the web browser came along, and that for the first time you could actually go to whitehouse.gov, mm -hmm. as opposed to having to hear about it in your newspaper or from your congressional representative. Uh, and so that was one way in which content was being delivered. Now it's increasingly getting that we we'll actually make the data available. Um, but one of the things that we actually tried to do with the FCC about five months ago with, some, with actually great success is we launched what was called the FCC Speed Test. It's available both on the Google as well as the iOS uh, store. And we made the code open source. It's on GitHub. And, and if you choose to download this to your phone, agree to the terms and conditions, it'll test your connection speed three times a day. Anonymously report that to a third party that's then shared with the FCC. And then the FCC makes that publicly available to everyone. And so it's available on our website. And so that's the first crowdsourced map of connection speed by provider of the United States, where in the past we actually had to pay for installations in homes. We had to pay for cars to drive around and test cellular signals. But it can now be done on your smartphone. And so I think that's the next frame in which it's not just the public receiving information about government, but they're actually participating in remixing and if they agree to, sharing data that actually helps inform the whole public that, process. That was quite a popular app. It was number four on the iOS yeah. So it's, 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 it's um, the public being involved in public service. So now we're transforming public service from just being me as a, as a, as a civil servant to now everyone being able to be involved in public service. Um, just to you know, turn that in a different direction and give that a different spin. You know, we have petitions.gov, mm -hmm. and so you know, before, how how could you get in your in your small area in front of your Walmart or wherever your local store is? You know, you have people signing petitions, and you've got to get that to the next point, and then get that to the next person, and hopefully it'll it'll get somewhere. Well, now we have petitions.gov, where you know you can put uh, put a petition on. I think one of our uh, most famous petition is the Death Star petition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, tell us that story. People may not know that. This is a true story. So, so someone, um, 
added on a petition um, for, for the government to create a Death Star. Um, and we actually, it, it actually reached the threshold for enough signatures that we actually had to respond to it. So the Office of Science and Technology Policy came back and responded and said, well, it's going to cost about $85 quadrillion in order to do that. And with the deficit, it may not be feasible. But we have a threshold that just shows, you know, when people come and they want something, we have a method to respond. Um, there was another petition, um, Major League Baseball opening day being uh, a national holiday. That got a lot of traction. Um, but it is, it is the American people being able to help shape. This is, this is awesome in, use, in being used to shape policy. We have APIs on petition.gov that people can use for various constituency groups, various special, special interest groups, are able to use the information from those petitions how they see fit. And so to me, just taking back to your question, the value of IT is the availability of the data. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about the availability of the data and then what you can do with it, you know, we've got big data. Now, okay, I've got all this big data. Now what am I going to do with it? Right, right, right. So, so would it be accurate to say then that, that open government to some extent is a function of where we can almost equate with open data? Oh yeah, there's definitely. Well, but, but it's beyond it, though, because I think. So I would actually say that 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 while open data is, or data being available is one thing that IT does, I think at the end of the day, it's actually offshoring or offloading cognitive functions, and so that you can be more creative. Um, uh, if we really want to have some fun, we can talk about. So what do you do once you have the data? Uh, about three and a half weeks ago, a UK company actually had an algorithm be elected to a board of directors for the company. And it actually is a voting member. And that may sound kind of fringe or, or sort of interesting. But when you put it in perspective that in 2012, the Hewlett Foundation actually had a competition to see if anyone could actually write an algorithm that would grade essays as good as a third grade teacher. And what they found was for $60,000, sure enough, someone was actually able to write an algorithm and it worked. Uh, a year later, New York's came out with a copier that you can take a handwritten test, put it on the copier, it will scan it, and it will grade the test for the teacher. And so think about all the things that we do in government in terms of we have to do classification of jobs because we need to make sure those jobs are equal and they're balanced and we're not doing any favoritism. And that's a huge process. It's very manual right now. But what if we could turn to the algorithm and say, I need you to actually create a job position that's this skill set. I need you to advertise it. Two weeks later, give me the top five candidates so I can then take a look at it. Same thing for requests for proposals. Right now, that's a very manual process. It involves a whole lot of humans to actually issue it, make sure it's fair and balanced. But could we have an algorithm do that? Because inherently, the algorithm will be fair. And at the same time, say the algorithm, OK, give me the top five that actually met the solicitation that I did. Sure. So I really see that the value, and so that's why I say that open data that's a part of open government, but it's also trying to think, what things do we, the people, really want to do together so that we can be uh, either more free, uh, more prosperous, more secure moving forward? When I think but there's, there's a, there's a, I was going to say a square around it, a box around it, but it's really like a dotted box because we can say open data and open government all we want, but if you don't know what to do with the data, it means it's useless. So you know there, there's, there's a mindset that oh we should just give it, you know open data means give it all, give you know make it all transparent, but that's not the right context. You've got to make it transparent in the proper context. So that everybody's understanding how decisions are being made, how we are using, how we're being fiscally smart and fiscally responsible. 
one of the so we're talking about open government and you know growth and momentum in data-driven journalism and transparency. And again, going back to Lauren's uh, millennial session we had today, where we had young leaders talking about, look, you know, and I'll paraphrase, you know, we, we all know what we do. Some of us know how we do it, but only a few of us know why we do what we do. And if you understand the why, then we can have purpose and passion. Early in my career, I remember a mentor uh, telling me, look, you need to consistently ask yourself three questions regarding work. One, are you contributing to the business? Two, you know, are you learning anything new? And, and three, and important, are you having fun? And mm -hmm. you have a mantra where you work with your IT organization. You ask them a very point, explicit question, what brings joy in your work? If I'm yeah. paraphrasing it. Right. Right. Correct. What so joy? let's talk about what brings you joy and transparency and how leaders today in IT and just about every line of business need to think differently a bit. And, uh, and be more transparent and collaborative and bring more context to the business. So I'd say for me, the joy is being a creative problem solver. Mm -hmm. uh, I particularly like things when someone says it's near impossible, that's never been done before. And I particularly, and, and, and I look at where I've gone in, in terms of assignments, I things where things were, things were at a point where clearly the status quo was broken. Because when you get to that point where it's clearly broken, then you can actually be creative. You started at 15, right? I did. So, so you, I mean, I'm sure this, we can have an hour just for those stories. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was Department of Energy. Uh, it was doing uh, computer models. And then uh, the Department of Defense uh, found me. That was kind of fun. And they said, would you like to take some of the, what was called at the time, it was called Ballistic Missile Defense Organization. It was probably known as Star Wars, more euphemistically. Take some of that technology that was used for the satellites and think about civilian purposes. And so one of the things that I was able to do was actually lead a project that thought about using those satellites, this was back in 1995, um, to actually pick up from space forest fires, scan the topology, and then knowing the topology, could we actually predict where the forest fire was going to go? And if there were forest fire fighters in the way of the flame, say, look, you know, in real time, you need to pull back because the fire is going to whip back and it's actually going to put you at risk. Uh, and so that was where I got my help on, you know, the nice thing about public service, We've got some huge national, international issues and some interesting technologies. Uh, later, I signed up in 2000 for a little-known program called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program. It was at the Center for East Control. It was only about 30 people. Uh, interestingly enough, in 2000, Congress kept on saying we were a Cold War relic that did not need to exist. We said, well, there's the sarin gas events that had happened in Japan. Sure, we yeah. can't find all the vials sure. of smallpox. Um, it was actually supposed to brief on September 11th at 9 o'clock in the morning uh, in 2001 as to what we would do if a bioterrorism event happened. Um, so that was five years of service with the bioterrorism program doing IT. You have a, you have a very uh, deep background. I do, and I truly enjoyed it. And so, but it's just finding those hard challenges. And so that's what brings you joy, going after difficult problems where you can creatively solve. Yes. What brings you joy? That is not a fair question. <laughs> because I have experience. You know, working in, in the White House brings me joy. You know, being able to, you know, it's just really a different experience for me right now. Um, being able to enable and empower those who are making decisions and, and, and doing some tough things for us, getting the message out to the American people about uh, what, the, what the president's real message is. All of that brings me joy. We had a, uh, the president had a Tumblr event yesterday, um, and, and being part of that and enabling that and setting that up and making that happen, you know, that that brings me joy. Um, 
being able to, uh, so my mentor actually told me that um, when I left, I was actually leaving Lockheed Martin. Um, I was the deputy uh, chief technology officer for one of their business units. And he said, if you are not afraid at your next position, then you won't do well. <laughs> and so I've carried I like that. that along I like with that me. And I tell, you know, when I, when I offer projects and things to my staff, I said, does, does this make you nervous? And if they say no, I'm not letting you do it. I want you to be, I want you to take that energy. I want you to, to I want it to drive you to do great and, and exceed my expectations. And so when taking this job, I thought to myself, am I afraid? And I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> so, so let me tell you what brings me joy. What brings me joy is we're talking to these two incredible people, Dr. Alyssa Johnson, who is the deputy CIO of the White House, and Dr. David Gray, who is the CIO of the FCC. And I want to see you guys asking questions. And so we have one person who's here to ask a question. Sure. And please state your name and ask your question. Yes, I'm Bob Fisco. I'm the CIO with the CIC. Dr. Bray, impressive. I like the firefighting thing. Pretty awesome. It's always good to use the USDA data for something good. Um, the question I have is about structure inside the government. And one of the challenges, I just got a presentation from NIST on cybersecurity in the cloud. I'm not sure it has enough of the FCC hand on it. You know, how did NIST end up in commerce when you own the standards for what happens internationally and nationally related to IT standards? And, and why are you not really driving a harder role in that area? So uh, the first thing I'd probably say is I'm not a congressionally appointed commissioner. We have five congressionally appointed commissioners, um, and I'm not one of them. Um, but I do think, I think where, where things need to go is, if you, if you think about the Federalist Papers, they want it they wanted different uh, instances of organizations uh, so they could prevent anything from too much power being aggregated. Uh, I think what we really need to think about as we go into this new world where things are changing rapidly, how can we do an interagency and maybe an interregulatory approach? Um, and so I'll defer to specific matters of policy to the congressional commissioners, but I personally think you know, you've got the Federal Communications Commission, of which I'm with, but you've also got the Federal Trade Commission. There are other ones too, about this itself. And so there's not going to be one organization that's going to be able to wear the hat. It really needs to be an interagency and interregulatory approach to cybersecurity. It's a very important issue. The other question is also, is cybersecurity changing so quickly? How do we keep up any framework to be up to date with that? But don't you have an enforcement arm capability that doesn't exist in the, uh, in the Commerce Department? That is true. Dating back to 1934, there is actually an enforcement part for the, uh, for the uh, FCC's uh, public infrastructure. Uh, for that, I'd probably have to defer to the chairman and the commissioners on that. No problem. But this brings about a great conversation about collaboration. I mean, we've been, we've been working really, really hard in the government to collaborate across all agencies, across you know, many, many departments, and, and making more of, a, more of a one government instead sure. of you know, some of these silos. And so I think this brings about a great... You mean actually a federal government? A. A. <laughs> Which for me raises the question... Uh, how can an innovative CIO, which, which both of you clearly are, how can an innovative CIO drive change inside a government agency? And most government agencies, um, at least from the, from the outside perspective, don't embrace innovation. Um, they, embrace, they embrace the status quo. But I think that's, again, part of you have to recognize that was intentional. I mean, you don't want certain things to change overnight. 
Um, whereas it's good to have a startup mentality in an era where you've got venture capital. If it fails, that's okay. Pretty sure none of us want the Department of Defense to take a startup attitude and say, oops, sorry, that whole military thing didn't work out. We're filing for Chapter 11, and uh, sorry. All so, right, no, it's, <laughs> so it's a fair point that, that there are uh, inherent, des there are desirable inherent reasons yes. to push back against too much innovation too quickly. Right. But in the government, though, it seems, and it's true for, for many, especially larger companies as well, it seems that the innovator is sometimes surrounded by anti-innovation antibodies. Oh, completely agree. And so what I want to know is with you guys is, as innovative CIOs, how do you push forth an innovative agenda? Go first. Very, very <coughs> methodically in bits and pieces. And so my, my um, methodology has always been, you can say no. I accept you saying no. How about you just work on this one little piece? You, you accomplish that one little piece, and I'm going to give you another little piece. I'm going to break it off. And then by the time you've consumed the whole thing, it's a red velvet cake, and you've told me you didn't like it. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the, my mindset is give, give it slow, easy, steady, even when you think of cloud. But persistent and but relentless. But persistent. And relentless. Yes. So even when you think of cloud, a lot of, a lot of people and a lot of failures have been, let's just jump all in. I'm going to be all in. And, and my environments, particularly, we can't be all in. We have to, we've got, there are lots of people who are very, very skeptical. Kind of, we have Presidential Records Act that we have to um, abide by that makes us a little bit different when it comes to how we preserve our, our records. And so, okay. Well, then, maybe if I give you this, maybe if I put an application in the cloud, or maybe if I put uh, 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 whitehouse.gov, because whitehouse.gov is, is in the cloud right now. That's our public-facing uh, website, and so is petitions.gov, and let's move. We'll put that in the cloud. And those who said, no, no, the EOP can't do cloud, well, guess what? We're already doing it. <laughs> now what? Now, now I've already got you, because I'm already doing it, and now, I wanna, now let's have a conversation about how else we can be successful, sure. you know. So, so that's been my approach. How do you make the decision that this piece is appropriate to go to the cloud? Ooh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and I suspect you have to think the same as you're modernizing FCC. I mean, yeah. you can't ignore the cloud. I mean, no, no. In know, fact, actually, I mean, our goal is I'd love to be able to say in two or three years that all of our infrastructure is in the cloud. Wow, that's good. That's our aspiration. But you guys, you know, there's another news Security is security uh, the key. Impediment or key issue, or are there other ones? No, not security. Procurement. For you, for you uh, it's procurement. Procurement, and, and it's not so much security. I mean, I, 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 you can see that things are encrypted and everything like that. It's more, I think it's cloud needs to, under, so, so cloud providers need to understand a couple of things. We have a lot of legacy laws on the books in terms of how we procure. Um, one of them is what's called the Anti-Deficiency Act, which basically says that government shall not commit to a effort until they have set aside the full amount required for that effort. If they engage in an effort and they haven't set aside the full amount, then that's what's called an Anti-Deficiency Act violation, and the President, as well as Congress, needs to be notified. They expect a civil war. Seems good. Until you come in an era in which cloud services are automatically renewing. Mm -hmm. To which is an interpretation is that's an infinite contract mm -hmm. in which you need an infinite amount of funds set aside to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So I would just recommend to the, to the outside private sector, if you can find ways to sell us things in chunks, and say we're going to give it to you for 12 months, and if you don't tell us at the end of 12 months that you want to continue, we're going to turn off the lights. Guess what? Then you've removed what would otherwise be a huge impediment to us doing that because no one wants to actually notify the president and say, my apologies, I did an anti-deficiency act violation. Um, so I think 
I think it's just trying to realize that we do have a lot of legacy, what I would call legal code, that we need to be aware of in terms of how we actually operate going forward. What about the skill set of the IT staff? Let's say you got the green light right now and you can go and implement multi-tenant SaaS, PaaS, right. whatever uh, solution uh, as a service. Do you have the skill set in your IT organization to, 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 to implement? So, so the good news is um, we're, we're, we're trying with many different things, uh, much like the, 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 the White House is as well. Uh, we're trying what we call the FCC Ambassadors Program, where we're intentionally going out to Silicon Valley, but it's not just Silicon Valley, but we're trying to find people that aren't looking to do a long-term five to 10-year contract with the FCC. They're really only coming in for six to 12 months. Um, and they're actually usually coming in by themselves. And what they're trying to show is a new way of getting things done so that we're in that discussion with a bureau and office and they say, well, that'll probably take us nine or 12 months. The FCC ambassador can say, you know what, I'll hammer out some code, I'll have something for you in a week. And it just shows a new way of getting done that revitalizes not just the government workforce, but the contractors that we're working with as well. Uh, we're doing the same thing on the government side where we're trying to bring in what we call fellows that are term limited government employees as well. Um, but that's just trying to bring in new ideas. A lot of them are Gen X and Gen Y. But I'm also proud to say we also have a 26-year veteran uh, motorcycle cop, Secret Service, and also does IT Enterprise Architect. That's awesome. That has parachuted <laughs> in as well. So we have 18F, you know, which is uh, the big initiative to bring, again, folks from not just Silicon Valley, but that just same, same, same mindset. Um, innovators from private sector, smart people from private sector, two-year appointments to be able to come in and solve some of the tough problems, oversee some of the, um, some of the big, big IT uh, projects that, that we have across the government, provide quick solutions, help, you know, help and provide uh, some needed experience that maybe some of our, our staff don't, don't already have. If so. I can get the, you asked the question of how do you do change, and so I think for me... It's a fundamental question, don't you It's think? a great question, yeah. um, and, and, and I've realized the older I've gotten, I've become my father. Uh, my father's a Methodist minister, and for me, it's parachuting in, learning the narratives that already exist, the narratives that may say we've, we can't do it because we've always done it this way before, or we can't try new things. Learn those narratives, and then begin as a network effect, so it's not just you but find early adopters that are willing to try and shift that narrative and say, well, maybe, yes, we can. Mm -hmm. Sort of building on what Alyssa was saying, too. But I'm a strong believer that people, people buy why you do something, not the how or what. And I know there's research that shows that, too. And so, so what I try to figure out is what's the big why of what we're doing? And so at least at the FCC, we're saying we're trying to take a legacy organization that may have IT infrastructure that's 10 to 12 years behind the time and, and be able to look back two years from now and say it's now cutting edge. But you proactively seek out the naysayers, don't yeah. you? You want to know who's the camp that's opposing yes. the transformation so that, again, you can learn their language, understand their perspective, and then through the power of the network, which they're a part of, right. uh, make positive movement. I mean, I, I actually, I'm also a big believer of making yourself vulnerable as a leader. Um, so I had a meeting with my team about two months ago, and so that was about eight months into our transition journey here. And I said, I'm just going to listen. But what I'd like to hear is both your hopes and fears and concerns about how this change is going on. How are we doing on the strategy? And one-third was very optimistic. Uh, one-third was also honest enough to say they were kind of sitting on the sidelines to wait and see what would happen. And then one-third actually wanted to go back to the way things were. And I said, well, tell me a little bit more. And I had someone that said, well, it's not you. It's not you, but I do have some big beef. And I was like, go ahead. I'm, I'm happy to listen to it. They said, it happened 18 years ago. It's like, okay, um, <laughs> tell me a little bit more. But again, just letting people have that voice to be part of the narrative and say, what things do we want to hold true to? And what things do we want to change? I mean, I really think 
CIO is two things. CIO is being digital diplomat and need to be that diplomat. The other one is being human flat jacket. Because you've got to be both the one that empowers your team to take risk and you'll be the ones that take the hits so they can try new things. Right. But you also got to be that flat jacket for people to say, well, why are you moving my cheese? Why are you changing things? Uh -huh. So how do, how do you balance the need to have operational stability, in other words, deliver your projects on time and, or, and, and on budget, uh, or another way of saying that is keep your projects out of the newspapers, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, versus the, the pushing of an innovative agenda on the other. How do you, how do you balance these things? So I am big with business metrics and, mm -hmm. and governance and seeing you know, what, what the biggest drivers are and how we can get the most bang for our buck. We have strategic objectives and a lot of our projects measure across various strategic objectives and we, sometimes we go for the low hanging fruit and sometimes we go for the, the tougher project. But I think if we can effectively communicate what the business objective is or, or what, that, what, that, uh, what that big gotcha is. Give us some examples. Of business if you can. If you can. <laughs> and in the meantime, while she's thinking for a second, uh, I invite all of you to ask questions of these guys. What a great opportunity. So, um, so when I think about my, my strategic objectives, we have um, stability, pre preservation, innovation, efficiency. Um, those are where we kind of fall along those, those drivers. Does this project provide one of these or more? If it provides more, and even when we have things coming in from our customers, if it provides more, we, we grade them and scale them. And uh, we have a, an investment review board meeting every two weeks, and we look at it and say, well, this is not gonna, this is gonna cost us too much with little, little, you know, little, little bang for our buck. Sure. Doesn't, doesn't feed as many users. Still needs to be done, but this one we may get a little more, a little more runway from. Let's work on this one. We can add. We can, you know, kind of keep this one moving along. Sure. Um, we have lots of meetings with our stakeholders and kind of let them fuss it out about sure. what the priorities are going to be. All of the all of the projects stay on the table, but they are all all in that process of helping us determine what those priorities are from their perspective. And then, of course, the news and politics drives really the, the main decision of any but, priority. But wouldn't it be the case that if you're if you're tossing the priorities out to the crowd, so to speak, that you're going to end up with kind of status quo priorities. Or is that not right? No, that's no? not right. Okay. No, that's not right. Um, when you toss the priorities out to the crowd, what we found is there's some, there's, uh, OMB might not have even thought of, you know, some, some widget sure. that OSTP wants to use. And if we just tweak it a little bit, it'll, it'll provide some great value to OMB that they didn't even anticipate and maybe check off one of their other requirements that they wanted as well. Absolutely. And so it kind of it kind of opens it up and it's a more it's a more collaborative sure. type way of um, vetting sure. business requirements sure. and and feeding our customers well, earlier, with services with enterprise services. Earlier today we had Georgetown University and they talked about how they opened up the collaboration in terms of innovation and they had a request for a, a laundry app and uh, it was like the most popular, you know, app on campus. So certainly taking advantage of the genius of, genius of the crowd. And I want you in the audience to know you're looking at two extraordinary social CIOs. Meaning, I don't think there's a day party a lot, Bob. Well, yeah. I was gonna let me get into the specifics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> 
every day, uh, both Dr. J and Dr. Ray are on Twitter, as an example. Um, in fact, you're, the, I think, the third most social CIO in the world. Um, but what, I, what, I'm, what I'm amazed about is not only you commit yourself to being in, in an open social network, but you respond and answer to just about anybody that asks a good question. And I mean anybody. So I mean it could be They're editors in chief, accessible. and it could be uh, you know an analyst or a pundit. But I find you almost daily responding to <coughs> Joe Smith wants to know about FCC infrastructure, and you're you're engaged. So so why are you committing so much of your time uh, to being a social executive? Well, that's a great question. Sorry, I'm losing my voice too. <coughs> so I think the reason why I find social media so valuable is there's a wonderful Harvard Business Review article that says, in praise of the incomplete leader, and that we all have blind spots. And so we hold up this myth that leaders should know everything, but in fact, they don't. And so by using social media, I can actually learn more from what people are saying and actually benefit from that. And so I try to be open to what everyone's saying, not just to say what we're doing at the FCC and recognize the team, but also be available to actually learn from what people are saying to me and actually inform myself. Now, um, Michael was asking a question about change. Um, and how do you actually manage doing both to keep the trains running and innovation? I think the trick there is thinking about, I come forward to say people, you know, there's leadership and there's management. Leadership is when you're going to step outside of expectations. Management is when you're going to meet those expectations. Mm -hmm. And the reality is I'm going to do both. <coughs> Excuse me. So sometimes I'm going to have to be the manager and I'm going to have to meet expectations, make the trains run on time, and manage what we're doing going forward. But other times I'm going to actually be able to think about how do I step outside of those expectations. Now, if you look at famous leaders like Nelson Mandela, um, his most trying moment actually was when he turned to his own party and said, we're going to make peace with the white minorities. And the ANC almost had a coup. Um, same thing Isaac Rabin, an Israeli, when he said we're going to make peace with the Palestinians, it was actually a fellow Israeli that actually assassinated him. And so I think being a leader, you have to be mindful of how much change can your support base manage? And so when you're being the CIO, how much change can both your IT team manage, but then also the programmatic elements of the organization that you're trying to support too? Um, and so we do have seven measurable goals um, with three specifics underneath each one of them. But we made certain that they were actually tied to mission. So that mission is bought in, mission is a partner, and actually what we're measuring is our progress in supporting the mission. IT is just secondary in some respects. So I want to answer your question about social, about, uh, about social media. I, my account is not an official account, which is a good thing for me. <laughs> um, but I have enjoyed networking. <coughs> it, it has taken my networking to a completely different level that I never would have imagined. I've met people, on other CIOs um, on the internet um, and met you guys on Twitter. We met on Twitter. We yes. met on Twitter. Um, I've checked more things off of my bucket list. Val and I wrote an article together on um, on Huffington Post, <laughs> and that was a, that was one of the things on my on my bucket list. It was, was an awesome post. So it was five CIO leadership lessons from Dr. J. But it turns out that the Dr. J on stage here is a fan of Julius Irving, the four-time NBA MVP, uh, Dr. J, the original Dr. J. So we so had Dr. J and Dr. Dre together. Dr. J and Dr. Dre wrote about Dr. J. Okay. It was one of my most popular posts, but, but the fact that we were able to collaborate was, was awesome. Yeah, was and, and you know, if I would not have been on Twitter, that would not have happened. 
I am very convinced that that would not have happened. So we have uh, a comment from Mary Fran Johnson, who is the editor-in-chief of CIO Magazine, and whose event, CIO Perspectives, we are here as, shall we say interlopers? No, we're not interlopers, because <laughs> you invited us. You invited us. Treasured guests. Treasured guests. <laughs> Thank you. That's better. I uh, just wanted to follow up. We uh, watch for CIOs on Twitter all the time because we and then we do ten of these events during the year. And I often ask the audience, show of hands, who has a Twitter account, and we get a good number of hands these days. And then I ask, who's tweeted in the last week or month or six months? Far fewer hands. So. The, we're always fascinated when we find CIOs who are getting benefit from it, and I think the reason CIOs don't do it is because there's not a perceived value for them. So if they're starting to think, if they're listening to Vala, and I know I got more involved with Twitter by listening to Vala last year about this very same subject, but if they're going to listen to you about the benefits they might get, how, how did you get started originally? Did you follow a couple of interesting people? Did you just force yourself to go on every day? I mean, because you have to build up that community of interest and you know, and meet people like Michael and Vala to see that you really can network on Twitter. So just talk a little bit about how you both got it going. So I had a dormant account just from initially saying I'm going to get on Twitter and then I never did anything with it. And then um, I actually said, one day I just woke up and said, I've got to do something with my Twitter account and let me get on and how, you know, am I going to follow people? Am I not going to follow people? What am I going to do? And I actually took Vala's top 100 people, um, top 100 CIOs, and I created a list. And the value that I get, other than networking, out of Twitter is the 140 <laughs> count, um, the snippets. I am a person who, and, and my staff knows, if you send me an email where I have to scroll, I'm not. It's not getting there. Me too. I'm gonna read whatever whatever fits in this screen. <laughs> is all about the amount of attention that I'm gonna get. So I'm a bottom line up front, and Twitter forces you to give the bottom line up it's front. It's great training for it really concise is. thinking. Actually, it really is. I have learned a lot more from infographics, small snippets. Um, whether I want to read this article from this this magazine or what the snippet is, the gotcha is from this magazine, just from just from Twitter. My my ask of you is, if you are not active and you're thinking about it, listening to two extraordinary CIOs, um, I will um, I, I will co-author a blog with you. If you want to write about something you're passionate about, we'll write. Uh, I contribute to Inc. Magazine or Huffington Post. And so, if you're doing something extraordinary. And, and you believe that others should know about it, um, I, I would be more than happy to, to do that. And maybe that's the thing that will propel you to, uh, All right. to, to embrace social more. So the other thing, though, I think, I mean, for me, my start was actually about three years ago. I actually started doing informal gatherings where I would just invite interesting people in person. Um, and you still have those. Still keep on doing them <laughs> about every two weeks. They're not attribution. They're informal. Um, and so actually, it wasn't until I showed up at the FCC, because previously I was with an organization where I couldn't tweet, um, that I decided to just say, well, this is just an extension of that. Um, and so I think we need to think about just how do you expose yourself as a CIO to new ideas, regardless of whether it's in person or online. The nice thing about online is you can do it anytime, anywhere. I have a, I have a question. Um, Dr. J, you mentioned that you tweet from your personal account. Mm -hmm. And you said that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what kind of social media policies 
<laughs> you guys have in place. I, I would correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that the official White House Twitter accounts uh, must be more restrictive than you can do on your own. They are, but but I'm I'm really a little more particular, only because I think that I have a brand that I have to maintain. Personal brand. Personal brand that I have to to maintain. Sure. Dr. J means a lot to me, um, and and not just the the name because I could get married one day and I'm not Dr. J anymore. <laughs> you know, anything could happen. Um, but 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 me establishing who I am means a lot to me. When I have a when you have an official account and you leave that post, those those followers and all of that that go, goes away because you have to create a whole other account. So I am I am thankful that I don't have an official account. Um, but my voice is the same only because I believe that I have the same amount of eyes on mine as I do as the others do. Um, those other uh, the official accounts, except for not and not talking about the independent agency accounts, but um, the official accounts are really about uh, message. Really, really honing in on a specific a specific message, a specific theme. It's really PR. A lot of times, it's really PR sensitive. And now, one of the people besides David that has kind of gone away from that and have really has really created his own voice is Sonny from GSA, GSA. the CIO. Of New CIO. Sonny Hashimi. Yes, he has taken the GSA CIO account and really has put his own voice on that, you know, as well. But you know, I can, from my personal account, I can tweet. I tweet. I say it all the time. IT by day, basketball by night, and so. <laughs> and, by, and by the way, Sonny, if you're out there listening, it's my fault that we haven't contacted you yet, because I know, because we wanted you to be in CXO Talk. Sonny will be a guest. And we had Casey Coleman, the prior CIO of the GSA, on the show, and Sonny will be a and it's, guest. On and the it's show. on my list. It's been, been a hectic <laughs> few weeks, so I apologize. You guys have been full. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's people respond to authenticness, and so. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate enough that uh, that 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 so far, and we'll see. I mean, it, I could have my Twitter account yanked tomorrow. Um, but uh, I, I've after been doing able CXO to... talk, that's typically what happens. <laughs> so if the, CIA, if the FCC CIO goes dark, you know what happens. Um, but I think it's just being able to actually have an honest dialogue, and actually, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree to everything that's said. In fact, you know, I generally just sort of say, I hear what you're saying. I see what you say. We'll get back to you if it's something that we can actually do on our IT side. Um, but it's also being ready for the unexpected. Um, about four and a half months ago, uh, it was late one day, someone had tweeted that they thought a link that we had sent out was broken. We checked and it worked for us. Uh, we double checked also both internally and externally. And so we, I tweeted back to the individual and say, could you check one more time, clear your cache, see if it works. They cleared their cache, it worked fine for them. And so I said, um, but then they also came back and they said, the day that a CIO is on GitHub is the day that the world changes. Now I don't know how many people, how many people here are familiar with GitHub? Okay, so we're good. We got some questions. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm a little bit more skeptical about these things. And I, I was polite, and I said, well, I fully support my coders being on GitHub. But the day that a CIO is on GitHub is a day that they're just really an overpaid programmer. Yeah. Um, and so we had some fun going back and forth. But then he actually went to GitHub, and he actually created an Ask Me Anything forum on GitHub uh, about the FCC CIO. So I was like, fine, fine. I changed my user ID on GitHub to be empower your coders, because I want to drive home my idea, which is the coders should be on GitHub. CIOs, you know, we're more working with the humans. Um, but it was a fun, sort of interesting dialogue, and it was interesting things that people could say back and forth, and just having that sort of spontaneity. Um, I just love the so fact that you were help desk. 
Clear cast. If you find no, something's not working, awesome. we'll see what so we can Dr. do. Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre, we're just about out of time, so let's do let's do something very quickly here. Sure. Okay. Sure. Let's let's finish up by uh, how about the how about the three of you tossing out advice on personal brand. What can CIOs do to build your personal brand? Okay, and let's let's start with Dr. J, then we'll move to Dr. Bray, and then to Dr. Dre. What can CIOs do? And we have to do this pretty quick. Consistent. Consistent what? Consistency. So I'm always consistent with my message. I'm always consistent with my delivery. I, at least I think I am. <laughs> my staff may be looking and laughing at it right now, but I think I'm just consistent with my delivery, and they know what kind of know what to expect. And so whether it's and you know we throw out these terms innovation and you know all these other buzzwords. But if you're not consistent with your delivery, if you're not consistent with your message, and then consistent with your methodology, whether that's I'm, my methodology is being disruptive or my methodology is you know being very very by the book. How about on social media? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but no. we've got to do this fast. Um, We're almost done. My personal brand. I'm, I'm just very careful. I'm careful. Just, yeah. So consistency, careful, staying true to yeah, the message. Yeah, true, true to the message and true, true to who I am. To the authenticity piece is a big deal for me. Dr. Bray, um, how can CIOs build their personal brand? Build their personal brand? Uh, well, obviously, when you first come to Twitter, start following interesting individuals and see what you can add to the conversations. Yes, um, tweet. <laughs> engage on ideas. Actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually just do it. Yeah, actually, you know, the, to, to quote from Nike, just do it, <laughs> um, which is appropriate for CIOs because you can actually make it just do IT if you really wanted to, um, and you can start doing that hashtag. Um, but I also think it's about three other things that I try to do. One is to try and be benevolent. Uh, to try to be competent. Well, that'll rule out Vala and me. Yeah. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Uh, no, and then, and then I think the third thing is just act with integrity. So consistency, acting with integrity, and just doing it. Just mm -hmm. doing it. Yeah, let me give you an example. The, the one word is slide share. How many of you know slide share? Mm -hmm. Raise your hand. Okay, great. Uh, a social network, you can post PowerPoints, and if people like it, they can view and share and embed on their website. Gus, who was an intern that worked in our company, at the end of one of my staff meetings, I gave a presentation on technology megatrends, mobile, social, cloud, data, and apps. Gus, at the end of the meeting, walks up to me and says, Gus now works full time for us, but he was a student at the time. Uh, Vala, can you put your presentation on SlideShare? This was October of last year. My question to Gus, what's SlideShare? Uh, I'm supposed to be the social CMO guy. Uh, <laughs> he introduces me to SlideShare, free account, post to PowerPoint. That PowerPoint was posted in October. It has 310,000 views. It's been downloaded nearly 10,000 times and embedded in 500 websites. Subsequent to that, I've put nine slide shares, and I'm approaching 900,000 views. So a beginner's mindset. I could have easily looked at an intern and said, you know, thank you very much. You know, I'm, I'm busy. But I was interested in what he had to say, reverse mentoring. We heard that earlier this morning. Introduced me a whole new platform. When was the last time you created a PowerPoint that would be good and sufficient for external consumption, but it just sits on your laptop? Put it on SlideShare. You might get a million views. And I'll, ju and I'll just finish off with my, my own thoughts on this, which is, number one, consistency. If you're not going to tweet, if you don't tweet, if you're not on social media, then there's no benefit that you're going to get, obviously. Number two, we have a friend. Val and I have a friend, actually another guest on CXO Talk, named Kari Anderson. And she talks about interestingness, so you need to put out content that your audience will find interesting. Number three, relevance. 
So it has to be consistent content, interesting content, and relevant from your audience's perspective. Can I just add one more thing to it? I'll be brief. Think of the word social. And let's look at the letters. S, sincere. O, open. C, collaborative. I, interested. A, authentic. And L, perhaps the most important one, likable. Sincere, open, collaborative, interested, authentic, and likable. And I social is not what you do. Social is who you are. And I want to know, did you just make that up now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, it is time to close episode number... 64. 64. 64. 64. Uh, two to the six. <laughs> of CXO Talk. And we have been talking with Dr. Alyssa Johnson, who is the deputy CIO of the White House, and Dr. David Gray, who is the CIO of the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, we'd like to thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for and having us. My yes. wonderful co-host, Vala. Yeah, we'll, we'll do, do it. Air <laughs> 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 well, thank you. Thank you. And I have to totally declare shenanigans on that social. I think you've done that before. Yes. Thank you all. Thank, thank you both for coming and being our guests here today. And thank you all for being such a great audience that you hung in with us till the grand finale. I will let you uh, uh, gracefully exit the stage. And I'll run a few slides at the very end just saying goodbye. We have. <laughs>